Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Have another great conversation coming your way this week as we bring in Rick Warmley, a longtime teacher, 30 plus years as a teacher, author, and educational consultant, as we dive into his thoughts on things like standard-based grading, differentiated instruction, assessment, and mastery learning, among other topics this week. Rick has made a tremendous impact across the K-12 landscape as one of the nation's first board-certified teachers, and his best-selling book, Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessment and Grading in the Differentiated Classroom, now in its second edition, is a must-have for your professional library. Among Rick's many accolades over the years, he was the recipient of Disney's American Teacher of the Year Award in 1996 as an English teacher. So he has great perspective and great experience as we think about how to create better schools for kids. So kick back, relax, and turn up the volume, folks. I think you're going to like this one. My conversation with Rick Warmerly begins right now. I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Reimagined Schools podcast, the show that shines light on positive leadership, technology integration, and innovative solutions to transform our schools. Featuring many of the nation's top educators, tune in each week to hear from best-selling authors, popular speakers, and thought leaders throughout K-12 education as we continue the conversation on how to create better schools for kids. From the podcast studio in Georgetown, Kentucky, here's your host, Dr. Greg Goins. Okay, folks, we're back in the saddle again, once again, with another great episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My guest today is one of the nation's most authoritative people when it comes to standard-based grading, differentiated instruction, and all things related to best practice in the classroom. A big welcome to Rick Warmerly. How are you, Rick? I'm good today. How are you, Greg? Good. How was that for an introduction? Do you think I was spot on there? No, it, it was absolutely perfect, except authoritative? authoritative? Nah. I'm plunking along, winging it like all the rest of us. Well, you have uh, just an incredible background, and you've helped so many people throughout your career. Um, you know, as you heard in the intro, uh, Rick has been teaching now, has 39 years of experience teaching a wide uh, variety of grade levels and subjects. He's part of that very first group that went through the National Board Certified Teachers Program. So let's just kind of start there. I, you've probably been asked this before, but let's just kind of have a little fun with it. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back as a first first year teacher, how much different would that experience be for you? And what would that classroom look like? Oh, good golly. I mean, every one of us wants to call our former students and apologize for what we used to do. I and, and remember the apprehension of being a first year teacher, barely a page ahead of the students as we went through the basal text claiming that we knew it all along, but really we just learned it last night before we presented the lesson this, this morning. That, that was a scary time. If I knew back then what I know now, I would have been far more confident. I also probably would have had a thicker skin and been willing to be gently insubordinate from time to time rather than cower before 
the status quo. You know, some people do that. Like, who am I to have a voice? No, you are a teacher. You have a voice. And back then, though, it was very much such a scary time. I would assume that my colleagues, jaded as some of them might have been and still excited as some of others, you know, might have been, they knew everything perfectly. And, you know, it's kind of like a child growing into an adult. When you're an adult, you're even more vulnerable. Madeline Langle has lots of commentary on that, her wrinkle in time. And Brene Brown and others have talked about that. But the, the sudden realization that as an adult, you don't have all the answers. And that actually is, is a good thing. Otherwise, you're in danger of complacency and perpetuating oppressive things that should not be perpetuated. It'd be a stunning change of the way I conducted myself that I think I now today see myself as much more professional. And back then I was floundering, barely treading water and didn't really perceive myself as a professional until a number of years in. But that would have helped me navigate those rough waters if I really embraced my entire professionalism. So I think that would be probably the most extraordinary thing uh, or difference in, in what I would do. And then as we fast forward to 2020, you know, I couldn't imagine uh, leaving my student teaching experience, getting a job, all the excitement and enthusiasm that goes with that. And then all of a sudden, wow, we're trying to figure out how to fly the plane at 40,000 feet. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, you're, you're reinventing how to do that, adding wingtips and rudders and everything else mid-flight. So the question in there would be, you know, how does one still maintain such a, a, a vigor and a, a zeal for the profession? Yeah. And, you know, I really, I really see two things. Let me set this up a little better. You know, I, I think some good things have come out of remote learning. I think that teachers have been forced out of their comfort zone a little bit to really yeah. dive into this idea of a tech-driven classroom, which we've all been pushing for for so long. But then I think the downside is, and, and I want to get your take on this for sure, but I, I think the bad part of this is we still have too many – schools and school districts that are trying to replicate face-to-face -face learning in a remote world. Yeah, right. I agree. But I also, you know, you, you can put me in the camp of those who say tech without the modern pedagogical principles is a, a global waste of time and money and planet earth oxygen. So we want our modern pedagogical sense of how the mind learns, the cognitive science of how the mind learns to be enhanced, used through the technology. So what is interesting to me is the synergy between technology and becoming versatile with it and your knowledge of education. When you're into a, a tech app, so a Chrome extension, an assessment app, a way to do feedback, you're learning Flipgrid for the very first time, whatever it might be, you, you're starting to look at the possibilities and it's, it's a creative buzz. It's like walking into Home Depot or Lowe's or hardware store and just getting so creative and so excited about what we're going to do. But it always goes back to, wait, what are my guiding instructional design principles? What are my assessment principles? And how can this tech allow me to manifest that way beyond anything I could have imagined yesterday? I, I'm willing to do that and engage that. And then how do I invite students to come in and guide me on its use and, and its power? with them. And so I'm mindful of agency, voice and choice from the students as a way to keep them involved and develop self-efficacy. Uh, so they're, they're empowered and they own their learning. All of that is entwining. But tech for its own sake doesn't serve. Tech in the framework of what do we know about how the mind best learns 
is, is unbeatable. It, it's great. And we can choose to see the burden, the restrictions, the, the, the anxieties of this time as a wellspring from which we draw that, that old adage, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, we can say, look, this is going to push me to reevaluate. I was coasting on very soft, easy things. I, would, I had a laminated lesson plan book and I would just pull it out every year instead of, oh, I have new students every year. So how might I do something differently this year? One, to revitalize me, to renew me. But two, because these students are different. And even though I might be this seasoned veteran, I'm getting students I've never taught before in my whole life. There are some principles that will apply, some will not. So do I open myself to unlearn something every single year? And do I open myself to what the students and their voice brings to my instructional practice and it improves all of us and I can you know, pay it forward with the subsequent generations after learning so much this year with them? Yeah, we can do that. Or I can choose to see COVID and the seclusion as the end of all I am. And, and that's the end of my identity as a teacher. And I am just going to bide my time until I can retire early, which is not helpful to any child. I would not want my own children in that teacher's class. So there are some people where this is beyond them. They're just not comfortable pushing themselves into the creative side. And they've kind of let intellect and creativity atrophy. I wrote a whole article on this, the intellectual life of teachers and how we have to constantly feed that part of our soul or we lose instructional effectiveness and our professionalism. So I might need to cultivate that in order to get back into it. And I'm gonna to need to be way more collaborative with my students who probably understand the technology and maybe some of the great instructional ideas better than I do with the, the access they have and the, and the versatility they have their whole lives. It's been around tech. And for some of us, it's been only a portion of our lives as we come in. So all of that is at play as I answer that question. And, you know, we talk all the time about shifting pedagogy to move away from this one size fits all mentality. And obviously I believe that as, as you do, but as we think about uh, remote learning, I'm, I'm making even a bigger shift more to an asynchronous approach. And if there's ever been a time for personalized learning or greater differentiation, I think we're in it with remote learning. And I just yeah. kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, one thing is a very practical reality. For a lot of teachers who have a, a really deep, high mountain learning curve in getting into this, they realize that they get through less curriculum in the same amount of time. And so the idea that less is more is actually very powerful. We are overwhelmed with way too many standards, way too many learner outcomes. We can't physically teach it and claim that we're making the kids competent. That is a joke. It's a hoax we put on the public. And so what we have to do is really, you know, put our big boy, big girl pants on and decide this is leveraging. This is pivotal for this. I will fight. And there might be only four to eight of those curriculum principles in one year in any one discipline. And then there's like a secondary level of important, but less so. And then just a nice to know. And in this early part of the learning curve, we might need to get Elsa about it from Frozen and just let it go, let it go. And realize I need to put all of my might, my intellect, my energy behind these four to eight and these secondary ones as we move forward. That's one shift. Second, I am not going to fall into the trap of deficit thinking. Oh, there's so much loss. This is a lost year. No, this could be 
the, the place where they flourish and I'm going to avail myself to it and I'm going to rise to the occasion and I'm going to be principled about it, which means I'm not going to do things like, all right, what's easily communicated? What's the most gradable thing as an assessment I can do as my filter? I'm going to do this. How do 15-year-old brains best learn or how do seven-year-old brains best learn? Whatever the, the group is I'm serving. And then what's the most amazing instructional experience I could provide? And then what would be an accurate instrument of that assessment of that that would uh, yield this accurate data that I can use to provide feedback on stuff? I'm going to be principled first, practical second. And you can still do that. I have found in working with school after school, internationally, locally, it does not matter, that the majority of our assessment grading ideas, our differentiation ideas, tiering, scaffolding, our instructional design can still be done with online communities, but we have to get comfortable thinking creatively about it. So one of the very first things is the basic needs. So we've had a tsunami. I wrote another article that came out earlier this year in 2020, and all my articles are available at rickwarmly.com. So just go there, use them for free, it's fine. Um, but on the tsunami of anxiety and panic disorders uh, and depression has, has happened. Opioid use has, has risen, alcoholism, uh, some abuse going non-reported. Uh, kids and parents, sleep has been affected, which affects your capacity to form long-term memory and the cycles of how you're feeling when you're sitting in, in the classroom present. And so one of the things we've learned is with the remote instruction, when you're doing a high-stakes assessment, you want to let them show their best face, their best effort. So we're going to assess probably asynchronously. If we want to build community and maybe do a few instructional ideas, we'll do synchronous experiences as best we can. And we can totally do that, no problem. But we need to address the lack of access, which is going to be the equity issues. And I, I will send this to anybody who wants it. I have these, these two full slides I do when I train schools on what are other schools doing to creatively get technology access to rural, urban, suburban, uh, impoverished, affluent, but dysfunctional family, uh, impoverished, but dysfunctional family, whatever it is, or people working at home, parents included, and there's only one tablet, one Chromebook, one computer. And so it can't be jiving synchronously when the teacher's actually teaching. What are the creative ways that we can meet those needs from all over the nation and actually around the world? We've got to start thinking outside the box. I did have an article come out that lists many of those just last week. And it's listed in the website, uh, therickwarmly.com. And it's about upsetting the apple cart isn't always a bad thing. And it talks about the creativity that we generate. And the, the, the opening of the article is teachers trying to figure this out and their ultimate list. So if you don't want to you know, have me send you slides, just find that article and you will see that list. And, you know, I, I think that's well said and great advice. Um, I get this question a lot, so I'm sure you get it a ton. But it seems like everyone is always uh, really worried about homework right now in this, in this new remote learning environment. And, um, you know, there's this, this huge movement that's been going on for a while now to eliminate homework completely. And, and now, you know, that's, that's magnified even more in a, in a Zoom setting. But uh, you have a little different take on homework, and I love the fact that you call it practice. Just like if you're an athlete, you just have to shoot more free throws if that's the area that you need to improve. Yeah, you, you're spot on. Exactly. So we literally, I mean, for decades, we haven't called it homework at all in my classes. It's your, your science practice tonight as follows, your Spanish practice, your coding practice tonight. 
And if you begin to see it as practice and you accept the premise that with access to personal technology, it's become a 24 seven time. For example, my uh, own students, uh, my own students, my own children, and they're in their, their mid to late twenties right now. So, you know, it's been a few years, but we're a marching band family. And so we're up and down the Eastern seaboard going to marching band competitions. And my daughter is an is a uh, swim team, competitive swimmer. So she's at the aquatic club or the center where the high school works out at like 4.30 in the morning, okay? So we've got weird hours. So they've just done a band competition in Orlando and they're driving back up here to Florida or from Florida to Virginia. And it's 11 o'clock at night and they're working on their homework. There's six buses on Route 95 and they're beaming their portion of tomorrow's presentation to a classmate in another bus. They're just bouncing, bouncing around. And so it's 24 seven when you do the practice. My daughter works out from 4.30 a.m. to 6 a.m. Then she gets dressed and from about 6.30 to 7.15 before school opens, she's doing homework. So for you to say, this is homework, this is classwork, just stop it. This is application and practice of what we have been studying to get you up to speed. And it's gonna happen, like a lot of high school, middle school kids will go home now and take a, a two hour or three hour nap. And then they have sports or whatever. And now it's 10 p.m. at night till about 2 a.m. where they're really functional and they're doing all the work. Or it's a, you know, a moment during the school day where they're doing it. So I think you can begin to see practice is, is something where it should be low stakes, which means it's not graded. No percentages, no letter grades, no rubric numbers, but it's high feedback. It's a place to safely wrestle and not have it be held against you as the final declaration of, of that you know, final summative proficiency. So we want to make it very safe, very inviting. And we also want to make homework somehow valuable and transformative. One of the things we've learned is you don't improve in things that you practice a lot where you don't find value in that thing. But when you find value and meaning in the thing, you do improve in it. So people always push back with me and they say, well, Rick, if you play basketball a lot, you get better at basketball. If you write you, a lot, you, you get better at writing. Totally agree. But you play basketball and you write a lot because you enjoy that. You find value. It adds, it adds something to your life. So we have a, a responsibility to not assign drudgery. We have a responsibility to assign something that's meaningful, transformative. When you learn this and get good at this skill, look what you now can do, this other thing that you value, the very thing you want to do. And then are we open to a modified democracy where we say, look, We've just learned this. What would be a meaningful way for you to practice it? Substantive, meaningful engagement with it as a form of practice. And so the kids come up with five, six different ideas. You choose three and say, choose one of these for homework tonight. And then when we report it, it's not a matter of compliance. We don't say, did page 26, one through 10. We say, practice dividing decimals April 7th. So we're rallying around the learning, not a rallying, did you do it or not, which becomes this power play. And then just one last reminder, when they do homework or practice of any sort in the same planning breath, we have to decide, and how are they going to get feedback on that from me themselves or from classmates or from outside the classroom? Because to do that practice and not get the feedback is pretty much a waste of everybody's time. So we want to make sure that's always an added element. Uh, you also have a great book out, Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessment, Grading, and the Differentiated Classroom that's now in its second edition. Can you kind of take me back and talk about that book and what was your ultimate goal in putting that together? Oh my gosh. I actually had an exit interview at Virginia Tech where I scolded my professors 
and the dean of the college. I mean, who am I? I'm this, you know, 21 year old. You know, we, you know, everybody has to have an exit interview in the School of Education there. And I said, you gave me a stats class and an educational measurements class, and that was it. And the stats class, statistics class, was just one of my options. It wasn't required. I do not know how to write or create quizzes, how to do a report card or a grade book or tests or do assessments. This was not preparatory for me. So they said, you're right. It's a weakness in our program. So what I did is a few years after teaching is I started gathering all the evidence and I wrote that book. Now, I, the book didn't come out to a number of years later. And I wrote a book, a first book about middle school teaching in between. But I wrote the book because I needed it for myself to sort my thinking, to do the research in a very practical way. And I was mindful of equity issues. Fair isn't always equal is hugely about grading and assessment. General, what are ethical principles? But it's also just as big on hey, what's fair and ethical and moral in what we do? So I combined those together. That was 2006. And when we got, and it came out, and it was, we're all excited about it. And then I just evolved working with school after school, high school, middle school, elementary, college professors, business leaders, admissions officers to college. And so many more ideas and insights came from all that work. So about 11 years later, I started working on the second edition and it just came out there. Uh, it's a copyright of 2019, but I think it came out right at the end of 2018 uh, for most uh, publishers. And wow, it's twice as thick. It's got a whole bunch of new sections. It's completely reformatted. One on like chapter two, for example, is brand new. It's on, let's not be a hypocrite. If you believe this about teaching or assessment and grading, what would be five or six things you would literally be doing to manifest that in your classroom? which is called integrity. We also put a ton in there about sports eligibility, special ed. We revamped the whole redo retake section because that's such a controversial issue. Uh, zeros on the 100 point scale becoming minimum 50s. We revamped that as well. We just added so much more to it. That's kind of its genesis. And it's a kind of a go-to for a lot of schools along with Ken O'Connor's How to Grade for Learning. Uh, 15 fixes that he also has and Tom Gusky's work and several others as let's get multiple perspectives and kind of create grading reform that we own here. But we have to be informed in the conversation and not argue from myth. And that's kind of the, the essence of the book. Yeah. You know, as I told you before we started the podcast, I, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, particularly around standards-based grading. And I heard you say in one of the videos that you've put out that letter grades, rubric scores, and percentages are nonsense symbols. And instead of grading scales, we need to move toward equivalency. How do you explain that to, <laughs> to teachers or to even parents in a school district? Sure. Um, well, just think about the emotional baggage we attach to every one of those letter grades. So a I, I, very simple survey, and I've done this probably close to 100 times, and if not more. Just ask everybody to write down on a piece of paper the word satisfactory or adequate or proficient and say, what number does that mean out of 100 down to zero? And you will have a variance of 20 to 30 percentage points. And yet all those teachers claim that they're totally consistent and their grades are accurate and you can make a high stakes decision based on the grade. Yet they're wildly varying in the emotional baggage they bring to it. A B is the new average in America, at least in the United States and Canada. C is considered poor. But when I was a kid, C was like normal. It was like average. But that shifts what people are thinking. And so what I tell people is you can use blue moons, green stars, the whole lucky charms. 
It does not matter what symbol you use. What we have to do is create a symbol and see it as a placeholder. By itself, it means nothing. But if it is attached to a paragraph of evidence, and we go, all right, when you see this symbol, this is shorthand for this much longer thing. I don't have time to write out, but I would prefer to be writing out, but I have 185 students in my class. Or when I taught elementary, I have seven subjects and 36 kids. So I put a symbol here, but I am begging you to go read what it really means. So one of the little tips that I, I started using myself and I advertise to others is don't ever use the 4.0 scale on, on a lot of your assignments because people will just falsely insert what they think an A, B, C, D, and F mean or 4, 3, 2, 1. If you use a 5.0 scale, a 6.0, a 3.0, people, parents, everybody is forced to actually read the evidence descriptors that you decided. And it really forces you to do a deeper dive and do critical error analysis and grow from the experience. You actually understand where the child is. So they're placeholders initially. And then the second element of this is that too much curriculum woven into one grade or one tiny symbol invalidates the report. So what we wanna do on quizzes and tests and so on projects is list individual standards and get a separate score for each one. So this is the end of test number two, 88, or ancient Egypt test, 91. That means nothing. What we do is we say, hey, this test that came back on Egypt, here are the standards, your, your grades are B plus, B plus, A, C plus, B. And now that really helps us go, oh, this grade that is really laser focused has way more validity. And I'm able to use it to make instructional decisions for next steps in, in your teaching, in your learning. So the goal really should be to assess the evidence of learning instead of playing this game of school that we've always been locked into for so long. So the question then becomes, and I've heard you say this as well, uh, what would you tolerate as evidence in your classroom? So how do you, how do you speak to that? Well, I, I back up a little bit. And when you're talking about something divisive, you always want to start with something you hold in common. And we say, do you think grades should be accurate? And every teacher almost always says, yes. I haven't found one that doesn't say yes. So great. So let's do the things that add to accuracy, that clarify, make the water transparent, and remove the things that muddy or pollute the waters because we want accurate communication. So when you use the, this, this, and this in that grade, you're knowingly distorting the truth because you're conflating the report of one thing with the report of something else. So this is a report of what the child knows about parts of a plant or the five protections under the First Amendment. But you also wove into the grade is homework completion rate and whether he was nice every single day and brought his supplies in a timely manner, had a nice neat notebook. That's not in any course description. And the grade is a contract between parents and schools. We think this is a report of what is being taught. So if you weave in stuff that is not actually stated as in the report, then you're knowingly falsifying the grade and making it higher or lower. I've lost count of the number of teachers in the grade levels below me so the one in, right in the previous year where they would count homework and classwork and things like that, 20%. The child only earned 80%. I mean, not earned, but, you know, demonstrated mastery about 8% of the proficiency of, of, the, of the standard. And then 20%, he did his homework and all that. So he got 100 in the class. If I make an, a, a decision about what to do with him next year based on 100%, when really he's just functioning at 80%, it's a, it's a false premise and it results in ineffective instruction. So one of the guiding principles is we never conflate the report of one thing with the report of something else. We report them separately. So this means 
character, work habits. They're reported separately. Timely delivery, you know, meets deadlines. And what's really exciting is when students get their own radar on that stuff, they actually care about it more and mature more quickly in those very things. And when I talk to admissions officers and sports recruiters and military recruiters, they love it at the high school level when they get a sense of the caliber of the character of the person. They say, here's what he knows about physics and science and so on, but this is what he does over here in the separate report with follow through and task analysis and working ethically. And they go, we want somebody like that in our school or as a candidate for our freshman class or really to work with us in the new company. Those are literally marketable skills, the, the idea that you do those things. And we want to give it even more importance by giving it its own report. So basically, I'm saying homework should count 100% of its own column, zero in what the kid understands about Middle Ages versus Renaissance architecture, because those are completely different things, and I have no moral authority to lie. And when you distort the truth, it is a form of lying. And when teachers look at it that way, they're beginning to go, oh, you know, you're right. I don't want to be a liar. So I will be honest and direct because it's about accurate communication and say, this is the grade for this thing. And this is the grade for this other thing. And yet here's one for this other thing. And we'll stop there. So we don't want to keep feeding into this aggregate. We want to keep things disaggregated. Yeah, and I've also heard you talk about uh, how to define mastery, and you really kind of get into the redos, the retakes, and the extra credit, and all that nonsensical stuff that drives me crazy as a former teacher myself. Yeah. So how yeah, does that I mean, how well, does that fit? Well, there's a lot there. I think the word mastery and proficient are very elusive. Um, you know, what constitutes like what is, for example, I've asked people many times, what does it mean to be literate in science? literate in math, literate in technology. And they say, initially, they go, well, you can define all the terms, you know, the lexicon of it. That's not literacy. That's like one tiny little 10,000th of a corner of literacy. So now we got to decide, well, what's mastery versus proficient? And I've been in so many places where geographically, two schools really located near each other, same demographics. And this school, mastery is the top of the scale, proficient is second from the top, but the school next door, it's reversed. Why would you settle for mastery when children could become proficient? It's what the community will tolerate. It's the same thing as saying an A has to be 90 to 100. My school district for years, it was 95 to 100. Next door, it was 90 to 100. There are school districts in the United States and Canada, and actually a few around the world that I visited, where 80 to 100 is the A. So again, it's what the community will tolerate as you move through that. The idea, though, that we would sit down with each other and calibrate what is evidentiary of proficiency levels is key. And that's not a skill set overtly taught in schools of teacher ed. It's actually something you can't do until you're intimate with your curriculum. So you really can't do that pre-service anyway. It's got to be in service. Once I know my curriculum well, for having taught it for a year, then I can enter in that conversation. But we sit down and go, seriously, Greg, when it comes to diffusion versus osmosis, you know, what's like excellent and what's almost excellent. So we all agree on the same line of demarcation here. That's huge because if you don't do that, then grades are wildly varying all over the place. What scares me, it, the last time I checked, which is about two years ago, so I think it's probably close to this, it's 40% and rising nationwide. And what that is, is the number of kids who have to retake high school classes post high school. 
So at military and college, university, uh, career training institutes, because the high school grades were false reports. You claim he knew it. It gives them a false sense of confidence, which sets them up for humiliation, yet they really don't know it. So now we got to go back and reteach that stuff. Why do we not care about integrity? Our, my name is on that report card as a teacher, the school's integrity and reputation on the diploma. They better, by golly, mean something. And the critical mass nationwide and around the world is rising for that very thing. Well, it's been an amazing conversation. I could talk with you about this all day. But as we come to uh, an end to our time, I do want to give you one final closing thought. Sure. As, as we have superintendents, principals, uh, teachers, educators across the board listening, if they want to really dive into this idea of standard-based grading, where do they begin? And I know that's a question. That's the million-dollar question you probably get every time you talk with people. Well, I, a couple of I, uh, responses to this. First, Tom Gusky and Matt Townsley are two of the folks who maintain a wonderful reservoir uh, from which to drink, a wellspring <laughs> from which to drink of information on the latest research. So I would advise you to visit their websites. Again, Tom Gusky and Matt Townsley. There are also lots of names associated there and on my website of lots of people whose works, Ken O'Connor, Leanne Young, uh, Susan Brookhart, uh, Rick Stiggins, Ann Davies in Canada is wonderful. And I do have a list, uh, Joe Feldman, if you're into social justice and equity when it comes to grading, his Crescendo Group, wonderful website for that. You've got my website that has a lot of recommended, recommended resources there. There are, oh, Tom Shimmer has a new podcast as well and a series of books with Mandy Stalitz and Garnett Hillman that are just excellent. And then uh, uh, Emily Rickema and Stan Williams in, I, it's in New England, one of the New England states, has The Standards-Based Classroom, which has a, become a wonderful book. There are great books, and I could recommend easily four or five, and some of them are recommended there on my website, but I'll send anybody who wants an email of my like top four or five books and I'm going to suggest this. You don't read one. You read three or four. And you come together and share, what would you learn from that? What would you learn from that? Because that will give you a bigger piece of the puzzle than just the one dimension of one person guiding the whole process. And again, you have to own your own reform. You know, you know, just, it, it's not an exact template to follow. Do this first, do this second, do this third. It's a lot of different intersections happening at the same time to change something that is so fundamentally an indoctrination. But that it, if it's indoctrinated, it means it can be undone. You know, it, it's, it's fixable to some degree. We can, we can move forward with this and reform it in a way that reflects current values. So I would start with the book reading and the visiting of the websites. I will also caution people in, in this regard. And again, I wrote an article on this. I wrote an article called Show Me the Proof or something along those lines is the editor chose it. And it's on my website. You can grab it. On the fallacy of saying... I need to see absolute incontrovertible proof about every one of the things you're saying about standards-based grading, or I won't do it. And to me, that's cowardice, you know, masquerading as prudence, but it's cowardly because it's giving you excuse to not have to change, to not go through the hard, heavy lifting of looking at that. And one of the things we found is that you can't control for all the variables. And absolutely, it's, so, it's a bit of what Dylan William calls a physics envy. You want a perfect physics experiment that you can recreate with the exact same conditions and get the exact same results. So one of the things we found with standards-based grading is it informs our decisions and it creates correlations, not causation so much. If I do this, this will always happen. And it loses something in the scaling. 
So it might've worked in this context, but it won't work in this context for this myriad number of reasons. But we have enough critical mass in both research with Tom Guskey, Matt Townsley, and many others, and in an uh, application that we say, you know what? The pattern is this works better than that, but we're gonna remain attentive and vigilant if we get something that would change our thinking, we're going to get that out there too as well. And we're going to revise ourselves in light of new perspective. I think that's the way you need to operate. But one of the first things we do is go, what are the limitations of the traditional, really lack of preparing for the professional world, post high school, post college world. And what are the, the merits of moving towards something that is ethical and accurate. And that's where people begin to go. Oh yeah. And one of the coolest things that I do, is parents, teachers, uh, school board members, and so on, who are initially hesitant or frustrated by standards-based grading, I say, let's talk about how you're evaluated in your professional world. And we see all the parallels. And secondly, how'd you learn your craft? And we show the parallels between that, those two things, and standards-based grading. They go, oh, this is far more preparatory for the, the post-high school world. I see its value now, whereas before they did not see that. So that might be something to consider as you're, as you're taking those first steps. And of course, every single one of us on Twitter and our websites is available for questions and guidance at any time. So many great resources there, folks. So you want to check those out. And again, Rick, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation. And thanks for all you do in pushing this movement forward. Thank you so much, Greg, for what you're doing, for your leadership. It really helps all of us. Well, thank you, sir, and that's a wrap on another episode, folks. You want to share this one out in your school and throughout your school community. It's a good one. So until next time, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite episodes, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins. You can also connect with me anytime via email at drgreggoins at gmail.com. So if you have a question or comment about an individual episode, or maybe you have a recommendation for future guests, I would love to hear from you. Also, anyone out there that has an interest in sponsorships on the Reimagined Schools podcast can hit me up via email again at drgreggoins at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, always do what you can to create better schools for kids.